and for us to receive comes through clearly. We're all dependent upon you. We cannot depend upon our own resources. And so we ask that your Holy Spirit who indwells us would open our eyes to behold wondrous truth out of your word. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you were the writer of the book of Hebrews and you're trying to encourage, encourage a group in a fledgling church under intense persecution about ready to apostatize and leave, you would certainly want to talk to them about Joshua because Joshua is a big-time guy in the Old Testament. He even has a book named after him. There is no book of Rahab. But there is a book called Joshua. People name their sons Joshua. I have a nephew named Joshua. I know some number of Joshua's in the church. Because why? Because he's got a great name. But I have yet to meet a woman or a girl named Rahab. Mothers do not name their daughters Jezebel, and they do not name their daughters Rahab. And as I just heard for good reasons. As I learned on Sesame Street, watching it with my children, one of these is not like the other. <laughs> I don't know whether missing Sesame Street in my own childhood, I was more of a, a, a Mr. Green Jeans kind of guy and who, whoever that other guy was. Captain Kangaroo, thank you. So I don't know if I'm warped because I didn't have Sesame Street or I'm in better shape because I didn't have it. One of these is not like the other. Why would the writer to the Hebrews select these two? To bring to our attention the amazing faith that both possessed. Well, both of them are rooted in the Joshua narrative and in the Joshua story. And both of them have much to teach us about living by faith. Uh, but very different things to teach us, and yet both of them are woven together in the same story. Joshua uh, took over for Moses, you know that, and he had the same leadership authority and the mantle of Moses, and he had just led the people of God across the Jordan River during flood stage to begin the journey into the promised land where they had to take the promised land through warfare. And the reason why God paraded that generation in the wilderness for 40 years was, number one, to kill off all the unbelievers, and number two, to give the Amorites time to have their sin in full before judgment came. And so when we're looking at the biblical narrative, what we're seeing is God waits sometime. And I think one application I would just on a side road say it's often when you are waiting for the Lord to fulfill promises that you believe he's made to you and you're waiting and waiting and waiting, it may be that God is doing a whole lot more than just meeting your need. That in the way he meets your need may multiply way beyond what you and I know. And so be encouraged while you wait that it ain't just about you or me. We can trust him in the long run. But the fascinating thing about this narrative, if you want to turn to Joshua chapter uh, 6, back in the Old Testament, it's, go to Deuteronomy and take a right and uh, blow the dust off. Maybe you hadn't read it in a while. 
But it is, it is a great, I almost want to preach this now that I've been looking at it all week. It's so great. But uh, Joshua um, actually picks up in chapter 5. I want to read this part to you. Um, the commander of the Lord's army, beginning in verse 13, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and he looked and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? Probably with his hand on his sword. And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. In other words, I'm nonpartisan. I'm the sovereign God. That's who I'm for. And he said, I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. That is Yahweh's host were commanded by a commander. Uh, Lord Sabaoth is Lord of hosts. We sing that with Luther. And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Do you remember anybody else who took their sandals off? Moses, standing before the burning bush. And who was in the burning bush yet not being consumed? Yahweh. I am that I am, Yahweh. Who's the captain of the Lord's army? I take this to be a pre-incarnate appearance, a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who it was. And the reason why I do, you know, some of us a while back wondered why I didn't think Melchizedek was. Well, nobody fell down and worshipped Melchizedek. And if this person was really Yahweh's commander, he would have rebuked Joshua and said, get up, do not worship me. He received his worship, number one. And number two, he told him to take his shoes off because the ground was holy. And so Joshua needed a vision of who God is and a vision of his greatness and grandeur before he was able to strategize and think about Jericho. And you've got to understand something about Jericho. Jericho was something that this ragtag bunch of Israelites had never seen. They were garrisoned. They were in a walled city. And that's not a great big city, but for them, it represented sophistication way beyond anything Joshua's army had. Uh, they were not a trained army. They did not have weapons of warfare. And so they're standing. Joshua is looking at Jericho. And I imagine this is before God has told him sort of the absurd plan he wants him to follow. And so Joshua's trying to figure it out. But he had this gracious visit of this intriguing person who just happened to show up. He appeared. And uh, he submitted to him. And the purpose of this verse uh, is to describe the seemingly hopeless situation confronting the people of Israel. If you look in chapter 6, verse 1, now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And so they needed to uh, hear in this hopeless situation uh, because they were a people of unskilled in the kind of warfare that was required, 
this makes Yahweh's statement, See, I have given Jericho into your hands, all the more surprising and encouraging. God's methodology is frequently like this. Greater obstacles for his people call forth his mighty help, even though we must admit that sometimes nothing looks quite so unlikely as that which God has decreed. And so there's a strangeness to his method here of taking the city. This military strategy you will find nowhere else. So what did he tell him to do? We can't help but noticing his method was strange. Armed men, seven priests blowing the shofar, or the ram's horns, the ark, the rear guard, such was that caravan that encircled Jericho each day and seven times on the seventh day. But as the crossing of the Jordan, it is the ark of the covenant, the ark of Yahweh that holds center stage. The ark is mentioned some ten times in this chapter. And it's an amazing reference. And it's basically saying it is Yahweh's presence that's going to make a difference in this war. The people are not allowed to shout until given the signal. And this little section stresses how central Yahweh's presence is and how passive at this point God's people are. In this case, God's people will not contribute to the overthrow at all. Even though we sing the spiritual, Joshua fit the battle of Jericho. He didn't really do anything but encircle the city seven times on the seventh day and shouted. But they did go up for mop-up campaign, and I imagine they hacked a few people doing that. But uh, it wasn't combat like we would think of combat. It was mop-up. It's not that God's people don't contribute at all, but here God carries the burden of the bulk of it. Sometimes it seems that God bypassed the activity of his people in order to enhance his glory among the people. Why, why does God lead us into so many catch-22 situations? I'm sure Joshua in his lifetime, I know, witnessed the exodus out of Egypt. And as the children of Israel were scampering across the desert trying to get away from pursuing uh, Egyptian elite guard, coming down them as fast as they possibly could to kill them, and on the other hand, the Red Sea. And here they are, between a rock and a hard place, and Moses says what? Stand still. What would be the last thing you'd want to do? Stand still and see the salvation of God. And what does God do? He opens the Red Sea. They walk through on dry ground, hardly a sprinkle. The Egyptian army plunges into the same sea, and about the time they get in the middle of it, the walls collapse and drowns them all. So Joshua had seen that. He had, he had seen the ways of Yahweh, and he's overwhelmed by that. But while we're considering strange items, <laughs> uh, this whole plot was amazing. Um, but it was the Ark of the Covenant that as it got into the Jordan, the Jordan opened up and they walked through on dry ground. And so the Ark represented Yahweh's presence among his people. If Israel only marches and shouts, uh, there will be no doubt about who batters Jericho to the ground. God sometimes still functions in this way. His normal pattern is to work through the instrumentality of his people. But since we have this tendency within us 
to obscure God's splendor and to steal his praise and glory, he sometimes sets our contributions aside so that others can perceive the overwhelming power comes from God, not from us. That is why you find yourself in catch-22 situations. And so as we look at what happens on the seventh day, they do exactly what God says. And the judgment of God falls upon that city. The walls fall down, all except for one house. Now, most people think there were two walls. One was pretty thick on the outside, and then the houses were located in between the walls, probably built on uh, wooden uh, foundations uh, above the ground. And uh, all of the wall fell and the houses except for one. It had a red cord or rope running out the window, and we'll find out more about that in a minute. But the amazing thing was, Joshua, how did he exercise faith that pleased God? Well, he saw him who was invisible, and he obeyed, even though the instructions must have seemed to him, as, as a person who had some experience in military leadership, to be absolutely absurd. And we know that Jericho, we know from inside information, that Jericho was in a little bit of a panic because they had heard what God had done at the Red Sea. They had heard about the battle of Sion and Og as they were coming into the wilderness, and they knew that Yahweh dwelt in the midst of his people, and he wasn't just a local tribal deity. He is the sovereign God of all that is and the divine warrior. And so there is salvation in Yahweh's judgment. In between the notices of Jericho's destruction is a story of salvation and rescue. Rahab and her loved ones are salvaged and begin a life in association with God's people. Rahab so feared Yahweh's threat that she fled to his mercy and she now received mercy. Which leads me to point number two. First, falling walls was a great example of faith. There are times when all we can do is trust and be confident that the Lord will fulfill his promises and do what is necessary. And sometimes the worst thing we can do is like Abraham tried to help God out. It takes a lot of wisdom to know when to act and when not to act and when to do something and not to do something. But here, we see it happen. But there's another person that Hebrews mentions, and her name is Rahab. And Rahab is a very interesting person. I don't care who you are, she's interesting. <laughs> uh, apparently, that takes place in Joshua chapter 2. By the way, this story is quite intentionally inserted because you could lift chapter 2 from the whole of the book of Joshua and it would still flow like a river. It wouldn't interrupt what's going on at all. But there's a reason why in chapter 2, uh, the author of the book of Joshua and the author of the Hebrews makes mention of this amazing story of what we might call a shady lady. Rahab, the Bible testifies clearly, is a harlot. She's a prostitute. She, runs a, she is the madam of a bordello. And you say, how do you know that? It's in the original Hebrew. But no, it is true. That's what she was. Her place in Jericho was the place where all the information ran through the city. 
And so everybody knew her, everybody knew about her place. And so Joshua, before he saw the captain of the Lord of hosts, decided to send spies to go into Jericho to try to see the lay of the land and what kind of strategy he could develop. And that, that was not against faith. It's not wrong to plan and be strategic. That is not unbelief. And he did plan, and he was strategic, and he sent these two spies in, and they made their way into Jericho, and they ended up at Rahab's place. It was probably a place where you could uh, board. It was an inn. But apparently word got out that there were two people who were not like us who were at Rahab's place, and they knew that the army of Joshua was not far away. And so the king sent word, his uh, police, so to speak, to Rahab's joint, in order to find these two spies. Now, Rahab bald-faced lies three times. You know what? She lies three times. I spent a whole seminary lecture with R.C. Sproul debating the lie of Rahab. I now believe it's totally immaterial. Totally immaterial. As a matter of fact, Hebrews doesn't mention it, does it? Neither does the book of James that commends her for her faith and works. Neither mention the lie. The end of the discussion, by the way, with R.C. Sproul was, he said, it's like World War II and you're hiding Jews in your home. And the stormtroopers show up at your house. And they want to know if you're hiding any Jews. What do you do? Do you lie or tell the truth? You tell the truth, they get them, they kill them, they exterminate them. You lie, well, you've lied, you've done a horrible thing. What do you do? What do you do? What do you do? R.C.'s conclusion, and I'm not sure I'm ready to die for this conclusion, but it made sense at the time and shut up the discussion, was people who are out like the stormtroopers killing Jews have no right to the truth. They have no right to the truth. You're not obligated to tell people like that the truth. I'm not trying to defend Rahab. She lied. I don't know what would happen if she told the truth. But she hid these two spies in the roof of her house under flax. And so she told them uh, after this event of them searching to go hide in the hills. But she made them promise her something, something rather remarkable. Uh, she made a great confession, by the way. Um, and it's quite a story uh, for Rahab. Um, as you're reading the story, you might ask yourself, how are these people going to get out of this city? And the writer's not really concerned here with picky ethical questions, endless wranglings about whether it was right or wrong for Jer Rahab to lie to the Jericho police and to sort of snag your pants on the nail of Rahab's lie and quibble endlessly about that matter. You never get around to hearing what Rahab is commended for which the writer has conspired to make the center of the whole narrative in chapter 2. This is like a wife who proudly opens the refrigerator door to show her husband the scrumptious salad and dessert she has prepared for dinner guests, but her husband, scarcely glancing at those delicacies, instead rubs his fingers across the top of the fridge and goes off muttering that there seems to be a good bit of dust on top of the refrigerator. That's what like quibbling over Rahab's lie is. Missing the point. A splendid exercise in missing the point. 
The content of Rahab's confession certainly justifies the central place in the story. She rehearses the might of Yahweh. For we have heard that Yahweh dried up the waters of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what he did to the two Amorite kings on the other side of the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you destroyed. This was the basis of her faith. She had heard about the mighty acts of God, and this is sort of a normal way to come to faith. Biblical faith is based on at least some kind of knowledge, data, and evidence. Even couples who fall in love with each other uh, by merely sighing or groaning or cooing or eyeing, rather, they communicate. They find out about each other. They find out what each other likes, their dislikes, their character, and all. So, faith is not just a warm, cozy feeling about God. It grows out of hearing what God has done for the people, his people. And so Rahab had, in a measure, heard the gospel of what Yahweh had accomplished with his people at the Red Sea and at the other battles. Then Rahab confesses the majesty of Yahweh when she says that Yahweh your God, in heaven above and upon earth below, that is the conviction of faith. She is saying that Yahweh isn't just some local tribal deity like everyone else in the ancient Near East, but rather is the sovereign God of the universe. This is coming out of the mouth of a prostitute pagan in Jericho. And she is making quite an amazing confession here. Here is a pagan Canaanite harlot with an Israelite confession on her lips. She holds to the utter supremacy of Yahweh. She seems to assume that the, he is the only God functioning in both heaven and earth. And so she seeks the mercy of Yahweh. And now, swear an oath to me, she says, by Yahweh, that since I have acted faithfully toward you, you should also act faithfully with my father's house and give me a reliable sign and save alive my father, mother, brothers, sisters, and their families and shall deliver our lives from death. And here's the evidence of faith. Genuine faith never rests content with being convinced of the reality of God, but presses on to take refuge in God. Rahab not only must know the clear truth about God, but also must escape the coming wrath of God. It isn't just a matter of correct belief, but of desperate need. Saving faith is always like this. It never stops with brooding over the nature of activity of God, but always runs to re take refuge under his wings. Amazingly, Rahab not only trembles before the terror of the Lord, but also senses that there might be mercy in this fearful God. What but the touch of Yahweh's hand could have created such faith in the heart of a pagan harlot? But he does. The story shows also that Israel is given great encouragement in Yahweh's faithfulness. The net gain of the whole episode of Rahab appears in the spies report in verse 24 of chapter 2. Surely Yahweh has given all the land into our hands. Indeed, all the residents of the land melt in fear because of us. 
The land was certainly a, a continued concern in chapter 2. And now the fruit of the spy's reconnaissance, the Israelites are assured that Yahweh will give him what he has promised or give them. And so he, they brought back this report and they were encouraged and, and they were known. But we see the beauty of the grace of God. And that's the final emphasis in this story of Rahab. The story involves the conversion of a pagan, a Canaanite, even a harlot. The word for harlot is the word zona. It is the usual Hebrew term for harlot or prostitute. It could have been that Abraham was actually a Kadesha, one of the sacred prostitutes who served at the Canaanite fertility shrine. But in biblical morality, there's little difference between a holy prostitute or just a plain old prostitute. So Rahab is a prostitute, a pagan, a disreputable one at that, yet she is welcomed into the people of God. You see, the whole point of raising up Israel in God's plan was not that Israel may separate herself from everything else and become God's people in the midst of a horrible world, but also something they failed at drastically was to be a light to the nations, to the pagans, to the Gentiles, to the wicked people, to the lost people. And the high point of that kind of activity is when the queen of Sheba visited Solomon and says it hasn't even been told of the greatness of his glory. And so Israel was to be a light to the nations, and here God shows them that it is by grace that people enter into the people of God. Rahab the harlot, Joshua saved alive, and she dwelt in Israel unto this day. Let me add a little more about Rahab the harlot. What happened to Rahab after Jericho fell? Joshua honored the spy's oath, and despite her important role in Joshua, the Old Testament never mentions her again. Not a word, nothing. Beyond the general report that she lives among the Israelites to this day, readers learn nothing more about her until she reappears in the New Testament. The genealogy of Jesus informs us that Rahab became the wife of the Judahite Salmon, the mother and the mother of Boaz. That would make her the paternal mother-in-law of another remarkable foreigner, Ruth, whom Matthew also mentions in Matthew 1.5. Uh, it would also imply a remarkable reversal of fortune for her. The once crafty Canaanite prostitute, condemned under the ban or the carom, ends up a member of the prestigious royal line of David and an ancestress of the Messiah. The consummate outsider becomes the consummate insider in Israel. Finally, James 2, 25 goes even further. Goes even further. Well, let me, let me ju not jump there yet. We're in Hebrews. She's listed in the hall of faith. The writer takes his cue from Joshua 20, 6, 25 that explains Joshua spared her life because she hid the men Joshua had sent. 
And Hebrews 11.31 interprets her welcome of the spies specifically as an act of faith on par with that of the other honorees in the hall uh, of faith. His comment that she escaped the fate of the disobedience also paints the welcome as an act of obedience, presumably to God's will. But James chapter 2 goes further. In the apostles' view, people commonly consider her righteous, that is, in a right standing with God, because she models James's ideal combination of faith and works. In short, Matthew 1, the genealogy, honors her, uh, rise to prominence in Israel. Hebrews and James 2, theologically, that is, is an example of faith, obedience, good works, and righteousness, uh, a, a condemned non-Israelite has become a card-carrying full Israelite. Isn't that amazing? Now, what application can we make? That's point number three. Is going, I'm going to make an application to the church on the basis of both Rahab and Joshua. And since I'm talking about Rahab, what application could we make about her contribution uh, to the faith? Well, remember this passage in the book of Ephesians. Therefore, remember that you, that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that is, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope, without God, in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Now, a lot of people like the red cord in the Rahab story. I read a book um, years ago by W.A. Criswell, who was Baptist pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas. And he was a pretty famous preacher. And he wrote a book called The Scarlet Thread Through the Bible. And I was a relatively new Christian. And so I said, well, he's big, big, big time. So let me read this book. And he talked about how the cord was evidence of the, again, the blood of Christ. I, I don't think that's what that's for. I think you can kind of, in a fanciful way, make that analogy. But he certainly did. And others do. But the point of the Rahab story is an outsider becoming an insider. There are lots of outsiders in our world, people who are Ephesians 2, 11 through 13. They are outside of. Rahab had many disadvantages that separated her from the kingdom. She was, of course, a native-born Canaanite. She was a Gentile by birth. She was a foreigner to the covenant. Her ethnicity doomed her her relatives and her to certain death under Israel's policy of Kerem. That is, they were to go in to Jericho and destroy everything and everybody and all the booty was to be God's and all the people were to be killed. And, of course, we know what happens the next chapter. But she, she was in a place where everyone should have been killed. She had the social disadvantage in the ancient world of being a woman and apparently unmarried and childless, and her description of her family, father, mother, brothers, sisters, and all belonged to him, mentions neither husband nor children of her own. 
She inhabited a world presided over by men, politically the king of Jericho, and commercially her male customers. Worse yet, she was a prostitute, and possibly even a madam running her own bordello. Her singleness, then, must, may not be surprising. What self-respecting man would marry a prostitute or tolerate his wife to practice that profession? In addition, her profession probably meant she had no female friends either. So she is a pure, marginalized outsider in every way. But she's not alone in the Bible. Ruth herself was a Moabitess. And others in the Bible have proven to be outsiders. But the wonderful thing is, is that in Jesus Christ, we can become insiders. We can become those who are part of the body of Christ. And that is what the Rahab story tells us. Jesus came to seek and save that which is lost. Jesus didn't call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And Rahab fills the bill. She's in his genealogy, for heaven's sakes. And if you know anything about genealogies, you just good people, self-respecting blue blood people, never put prostitutes in their genealogy or adulteresses like Bathsheba or Tamar or Ruth who in the tent with Boaz well I'll just leave that to your imagination they're all suspect why that's who Jesus came to save these are the people he bled and died for these are the people he obeyed the law for and so sometimes we need our, our goggles, our holy goggles removed to understand that there are going to be people, if we're preaching the gospel, who are going to be in our midst who may have more in common with Rahab than they do with Joshua. And these poor people have no idea what church is about. But we must remember that Jesus hung out with tax collectors and sinners, a motley crew if there ever was one. And the crowd that surrounded Jesus included a zealot, that is a man who espoused violence against Rome, and a tax collector, Matthew. Remember further that without embarrassment, the Bible includes Rahab in the ancestry of Jesus. And so God not only welcomes outsiders, but he also uses them to encourage his people. But then there's also a takeaway from Joshua. And Joshua, there's a very powerful takeaway. Um, his takeaway is the most decisive victory that Jericho points to is the victory already won for us at the cross by the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has already won the decisive battles for us. To us, the tide of war often seems turned against us. But Christ's victory has in reality decisively turned everything in our favor. To paraphrase Joshua, Jesus has already given the enemy into our hands. The healing of the Gerasim demoniac marks one such victory. This man's tormentors were so despotic that he lived pathetically alone among ritually unclean tombs and spent his time cutting himself. They were, in fact, a demon horde by the name of Legion, in, in Roman terms, for a fearful military unit. 
Jesus banished the spiritual legion to nearby pigs, a conquest akin to those of Yahweh's war against Israel's enemies. He proved them to be powerless before his wondrous power. I don't know exactly how many demons were in the Gerasene demoniac, but enough to cause 3,000 pigs to run down the hill and drown themselves. The cross and the resurrection of Christ are his most decisive victory. He has already won that for us. The victory of Skull Hill, that is Golgotha, at Calvary, and the empty tomb, God through Christ has decisively defeated our bitterest enemies, sin and death, and the devil. In Colossians 2.15, Paul imagines three invisible events that happened on Calvary's hill when Jesus died. First, God disarms the powers and authorities, stripping them of their might like an old, frayed, useless garment. Then he made them a public spectacle to expose to public shame and disgrace. He imagines the once powerful authorities slowly trudged naked and downcast past the crowds in disgrace. What an irony. At the time, Jesus' disciples mourned a terrible loss, but in retrospect, it marked the stunning, humiliating defeat of the powers of darkness. By the way, you don't have to be afraid of the powers of darkness. You have in Jesus Christ all authority and rights to deal with anything approaching the demonic. There should be no fear in us regarding that. Paul imagines uh, God triumphing over them, and this is a picture of a general leading his victorious army and vanquished foes in public celebration after a battle. The point of Paul's imagery scenario is this. At the time of Jesus' death and resurrection, it seemed like a colossal setback for God's salvific plan. But in retrospect, it emerges as the decisive defeat of his enemies. It defeated, dethroned, and disarmed the prince of darkness. What are the implications Paul's images are for us? It means we are not responsible for winning the final victory of God. Christ has already done that. Our responsibility is to carry out our duties as faithful soldiers of the Christ. And it means that our spiritual enemy, Satan, and all of his hosts need no longer paralyze us with fear. Though we take it seriously, Satan today is an enemy already defeated, already disarmed by the warrior Jesus. We don't need to cower in fear before him. We dishonor Christ and deny the reality of his great victory at Calvary and his empty tomb when we treat the devil as a spiritual boogeyman who haunts us at every step. In trying not to underestimate the threat that he and his army pose, we sometimes overestimate their power. We need to remember just how defeated and powerless they are. Imagine them as dazed, humiliated soldiers fun further or under the authority of Jesus and sing with Martin Luther in his mighty fortress, the prince of darkness grim. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. One. And finally, Christ's victory reminds us 
of just how great is the power at work in us. At Calvary in the empty tomb, God displayed firepower that was overwhelming. It released all creation from the grip of sin and death. And that same power undergirds us in our faithful service as spiritual soldiers fighting the battle. We can say in the same way that the disciples shouted and the walls came tumbling down in Jericho, our enemy is already on the run, so our task, like Israel at Jericho, is to enter inner enemy territory, follow up and consolidate Jesus' victory there. I used to know a man who used to greet people by saying, Praise God, the devil's on the run. <laughs> I kind of wanted to stay away from him because he was weird in other ways too, but <laughs> he said that. And now as I look back on it, he's probably right. He was another one of those outsiders. We do take Satan's power seriously, and I'm not here to say that we don't, but we don't have to live in terror of him. We do not have to live that way. We don't have to flee and retreat. He is still, still reeling from the crushing and thrashing at Calvary and the empty tomb. And so we should... Remember, Jesus' wonderful victories assure us that however the difficult Jerichos we may face in our own walk and life, our confidence and persistence derive from the fundamental biblical truth that Jesus has won the decisive battle. It's over. It's finished. It's done. And we can be confident in that victory that we have hope. He triumphed. Our enemies have been stripped of their weapons and publicly humiliated. People may erect walls to keep Jesus out, but no walls can withstand his overwhelming power. So that is God's word to us today. Faith first, deliverance later, and the ultimate fulfillment in the life of both Joshua and Rahab came at Skull Hill and the empty tomb. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. It is true. It is truth. And we thank you that the writer of Hebrews included this in his text. And we pray that it will encourage us and lift us up and give us hope. In the name of Jesus, and we do pray as we continue to worship and receive the offering that we would give as those who stand in continuity uh, with uh, those who rejoice in the salvation Jesus has achieved for us. And we pray in his name. Amen.